We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the At the end of World War One, Fighting Mac was the most famous Anzac. Even before the Australians landed at Gallipoli, he was a hero to the Australian soldiers. After the Anzac landings and right through to the time that he was sent home from the Western Front, exhausted from his superhuman efforts in the war, he was a legend and the man that the Anzacs revered. For decades after the end of the war, he attracted huge crowds of adoring soldiers and their families wherever he went. Fighting Mac never rose above the rank of Major. He served only with the 1st Brigade AIF and he wasn't one of the wartime leaders or one of the great generals. But his fame spread throughout the entire AIF and back home where people were desperate to shake his almost sacred hands until at the end of the day of meeting people they were left bleeding. And how is it that today if you say the name Fighting Mac people will have no idea who you're talking about. Fighting Mac is Australia's forgotten hero. He's been forgotten for too long, and I'm going to share his story with you in this and my next programs. It's a story we all should know. As we say, lest we forget, here's a little poem read by Alan Jones. This poem was sent to me by someone who regularly reflects on Gallipoli because He served for 13 years in the Royal Australian Navy. And he said in sending me the poem, my service was insignificant compared to what these brave men and women endured. And he sent me a poem simply titled, Lest We Forget. I'm not a badge of honour. I'm not a racist smear. I'm not a fashion statement to be worn but once a year. I'm not glorification of conflict or of war. I'm not a paper ornament, a token. I'm more. I'm a loving memory of a father or a son, a permanent reminder of each and every one. I'm paper or enamel. I'm old or shining new. I'm a way of saying thank you to every one of you. I am a simple poppy. A reminder to you all that courage, faith and honour will stand where heroes fall. Charles W. Bean was a journalist and the official journalist of the AIF. It wasn't all good being the official journalist. The government and the army got to have a lot of say over what he wrote to his frustration. Other journalists like Keith Murdoch had much more freedom to do their reporting. But they didn't have the job that was to make Bean important to the story of Australia and the story of the Anzac. Bean got to write the official history of Australia in the war of 1914-1918. He got access to far more information than the other journalists that let him write those histories. In all, he wrote 12 volumes, which was one short of the 13 that he had planned on writing. The last volume was going to be about the amazing services provided by our army chaplains. 
When I last finished Fighting Mac's story, he'd just been appointed as the first official Salvation Army chaplain to the AIF. The famous Kui march from Gilgandra was happening. Here's Dan Kunor with a poem about that march and the excitement of the young Australians going off to their unforgettable adventure, although it didn't turn out to be how they imagined. It's about the Kui march, and it, this poem was written when the march was actually underway. And uh, it describes in the march, in the part, in the poem, just uh, how things were going. He started a call in the heart of the West. It's growing and eating each day. And some of the brawniest men and the best are bound for the thick of the fray. Gilgandra gave the clarion call. Coo-wee! And Billy Hitchin, he led the way. And the bushman dropped the wedge and moor and left the castle right. The boundary rider, further west beyond the back of Burke, has joined the list of Hitchin's best for mustering up the Turk. And out Ningen Way, where scorching sun in summertime beats down, came Bushman Brave to shoulder gun and maybe win a crown. The march is steadily forging on, no matter dry or rainy. At Dubbo, it has been and gone, and now it's nearing Blaney. At Orange, you can bet your boots a welcome warm awaits it. It's a novel way to get recruits. It's good, the message states it. And Orange and Bathurst booms it with a bang. God bless that western city. While Bushmen, they'll join the ranks in Wang and Lithgow, where it's gritty. And down the mountain soon will swing. The cooies clang and clatter. Another stage, I think, will bring the boys to Parramatta. But let us not forget those men who humped their swags and walked it. They got a mighty move on when few others even talked it. So give a cheer to Hitchin and his soldier boys today. Don't you think they've done it grand along the castle ray? Good luck to every mother's son. Their parts like men they'll play. They came from Western Farm and Run and from the Castle Road. Being a chaplain to the Australian Army wasn't an easy thing. You had three big hurdles to get over before the men would accept you. First, chaplains were officers and therefore the enlisted men disliked them on principle. Not fair, but that's life. Second, they were non-combatants and stayed behind the lines when the soldiers went into battle. There's a special bond that develops between men who face death together. It's a bond that lasts their whole life. It's a bond that someone who doesn't share that danger of either losing their life or being horribly maimed or crippled in an instant that becomes a barrier that prevents the fighting soldiers bonding with the soldiers who don't fight, and that includes chaplains. And the last strike that many soldiers had against chaplains was that they represented religion. As Adolf Hitler said, religion is the opposite of Darwin's survival of the fittest. It protects the weak that nature wants to eliminate. The Salvation Army was especially a worry for the types of soldiers that were against religion interfering with their lives. That army was against drinking, gambling, smoking, swearing and womanising, It had only kicked off in Australia in 1880, and most people had no idea of what it was about. In 1897, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, appointed Samuel Logan Bringle to spread the message of the Salvation Army to the world. 
And so the movement wasn't very old, 17 years later, when the Great War broke out. Fighting Mac had the odds stacked against him being a chaplain to the Australian Army, didn't he? So how did he become the man that the Anzacs most revered? Mac was a natural chaplain and, more importantly, a natural fit with the AIF, and there were a number of reasons for that. For one thing, the Salvation Army was organised like the Army. It had pledges, oaths of allegiance to the flag. It was a top-down organisational structure and a self-sacrificing commitment was demanded of its officers particularly. Mac's assignments throughout Australia with the Salvation Army had him mixing with the most irreligious types from the beginning. All of his Salvation Army postings and experiences meant that he had no trouble talking to any of the soldiers at their level. He'd worked where they'd worked. He understood their hard life. He was also gifted with a phenomenal memory. He could talk in an informed way on many topics. He was able to talk to the men about the jobs they did in peacetime. You just had to look at him, be with him, talk to him, to know that he was sincere, committed, had a great sense of humour, was the most humble bloke you could ever hope to meet. He was blessed with physical attributes that meant that the soldiers had to respect him. He was a giant of a man, physically tough, strong, always organising things, getting things done. He had unflagging energy. He was the ever-ready bunny times a thousand. The paperwork of men inducted into the Australian Army wasn't the Army's strong point. Often the information about the inductee was badly mucked up. For example, Mac's wife's name was listed as Dorothy. It was Dorothea, in fact. The recruitment people usually put a man's religion down as C of E, Church of England. Most Australians were in those days. They didn't bother much with the other religions. But a man's religion shown on his papers could have a profound impact on what happened to him if he was killed or dying. He would probably be buried by someone of the faith that his records showed and not by someone who belonged to his actual religion. And that really mattered to the Anzacs. The army was good, though, at reading heights and weights, and that wasn't complicated. On enlistment, Mac was recorded as being 1.85 metres tall, 6 foot 1, 108.8 kilograms, 17 stones, 2 pounds, with a chest measurement of 106.6 centimetres, 42 inches. He was an enormous bloke. Fighting Mac was a man who was easy to love, and there's a story about how he came to sail with the first AIF convoy to Egypt on board the steamship Euripides. Is it true? I don't know. Nobody alive today knows, but it could be, and anyway, it's a bloody good story that gives us a feel for the sort of man that Mac was, even if it isn't true. The story goes like this, and certainly there's a lot of truth in it. Chaplains were assigned to the ships based on the percentages of men on board who belonged to their religion. Mac had at first been assigned to the Euripides, but because there weren't enough Salvation Army people on board this first fleet in reverse, Mac was reassigned to the reserve forces who were going to stay in Australia. The men who were travelling on the Euripides heard from Mac why he couldn't go with them. They'd gotten a chance to know him in the time before they sailed, and he already had won them over. The decision not to let him go was reversed the next day when overnight 3,000 Australians on the Euripides changed their religion to Salvation Army. This is a story about how much the men loved Mac, 
that is repeated time and time again during his time through the war and by the veterans after the war. An officer of the 1st Brigade, which the 4th Battalion that Mac had been assigned to was part of, told Mac that he didn't know much about the Salvation Army. Not surprising. Mac told him that that was okay. He didn't know much about the King's Army either, but they could learn from each other. The ship Euripides carried about 3,000 souls. It was a ship built to transport 1,000. So conditions on board for the voyage were very cramped. Mac immediately took to organising activities on board the ship. He had a natural flair for that sort of thing throughout his whole life. If it wasn't for him, it would have been a boring trip that would not have done much for the morale of the men. It seems clear that Mac organised boxing matches on board the ship. That was a popular and manly sport. The accounts differ. If you believe one of them, Mac got into the ring himself on more than one occasion. A chaplain always seemed to be an easy bit of sport for the men of the first contingent of soldiers going to fight for the mother country. Respect always has to be earned. It's not just given to you by pips on your shoulder. If the stories about these boxing matches are to be believed, Mac was undefeated in the boxing ring during the voyage. The accounts of a boxing match with Mac say that the first thing that many a young Australian who had been decked by Mac in the ring saw was his huge hand reaching down to give the chap a hand back up. One young soldier, once he'd regained consciousness, said, Are you sure you're really a chaplain? It quickly became apparent to these no-nonsense soldiers, many of them bred and raised in the bush, who could spot a phony a mile away, that Mac was no ordinary man of the cloth and no phony. He organised singing and other entertainment on the ship, church services. It was hard work to get the men to enthusiastically join in at first, but one song in particular broke the ice. It was a song called The Sunshine Song. Whether it was sung on this ship or not, when it was written, isn't clear, but it may have been later in the war. Whenever it was, that song became the signature song for Mac, and it was a song that came to be loved by the men, who he constantly inspired and kept their spirits up over the coming bloody and gruesome years of the war. Here's that song sung by one of Mac's grandchildren. Though the way be dark and the road be long and dreary, the sun is shining somewhere, I know, I know. So to keep my heart from ever growing weary, I carry my sunshine with me wherever I go, go. Though the way be dark and the road be long and dreary, the sun is shining somewhere, I know, I know. So to keep my heart from ever growing weary, I carry my sunshine with me wherever I go. So that's called the Sunshine Song. It was written a hundred years ago as a marching tune for Anzac soldiers as they were heading off to Gallipoli and later on to France. And the author of that was an Australian chaplain by the name of William Fighting Mac Mackenzie, <laughs> who happens to be my great-grandfather. And I guess the song was lost for many years, but a couple of years ago a gentleman wrote a biography about him and did some research and uh, recovered a recording of it and then had one of his students do an annotation. So that's... Uh, a hundred-plus-year-old song by my great-grandfather. This new first fleet of the Anzacs sailed 
for war from Albany in Western Australia on 1 November 1914. What a moment. For some, it was the last time that many of these men would see Australia for many years. For others, it was simply the last time that they would see it, period. For those last unlucky men who never returned, it would be like the poet-soldier Rupert Brooke said of the English dead of the Great War, some corner of a foreign field that will forever be Australia. Here's Alan Jones reading that poem. Just change the words referring to England to Australia. When war broke out in August 1914, young men of the warring nations rushed to enlist in England. The patriotic fervour was personified by Rupert Brooke, and he wrote a poem simply called The Soldier. If I should die, think only this of me that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England, there shall be, in that rich earth, a richer dust concealed. A dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam. A body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think this heart all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams, happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends and gentleness in hearts of peace under an English heaven. The evening that the Australians left Albany, news came that Turkey had thrown in its lot with Germany and Austria-Hungary. This was going to change their destination from Europe and Egypt and would change their destiny on the shores of Gallipoli. The reason given for diverting the Australian soldiers to Egypt was that the British training grounds were full to capacity and couldn't take the Aussies. The Aussies were assigned to Mina, just outside Cairo, for their camp. Lieutenant Colonel Thompson immediately started training and exercises for the men of his 4th Battalion. It challenged the fittest men. They went on gruelling marches in full kit in the desert. Half of the men dropped out from exhaustion. The chaplains weren't required to do this training, but Max's style was to share everything that the men did. His diary and letters show that he was really enjoying the challenges of these long-distance marches, digging trenches and target practice. He scored four out of six bullseyes. He even led sham charges and attacks to encourage the men. On one of these marches, Max set such a blistering pace that none of the men could keep up with him. On other marches, he carried the packs of men who were too exhausted to continue, in addition to his own. He was 44 years old, double the age of the boys. This was an impressive feat. The men had to admire him. Mac definitely had the stuff of a military leader. A brigade major, when he was in Egypt, or perhaps in Gallipoli, once asked him if he would take the rank of captain and command one of his companies in his battalion as a fighting officer, as he was too good and valuable a man to be a padre. But chaplaincy was the work that God called him to, and it was there that he rendered far more valuable service to the men than he could ever have done as a field officer. The men were also impressed by his horsemanship, Learnt from his days on a cattle station, one of his early jobs, when he was 15. Once on a parade, the nervous jet-black charger that he was on shied and rolled over. Mac leapt from the saddle, avoiding serious injury to himself, but he kept hold 
of the reins and kept the horse under control. The men were impressed, cool, quick thinking and acting, always in control in any situation. The soldiers got to vote with their feet when it came to which chaplain's service they would go to. This speaks for itself about Mac. Church parades were compulsory, which meant that they weren't popular, generally. There were three other chaplains, including an Anglican chaplain, Dean Talbot, and a Roman Catholic chaplain in the 1st Brigade. Mac services were lively, the sort of thing that soldiers needed. He usually allowed the men to sit during his service when appropriate. His services were very strongly worded, pitched against swearing, stealing, and whoremongering. As time went by, more and more men attended his services. 1600 on 28 December 1914, more than 2000 in early March. This was more than half of the entire men in the 1st Brigade, leaving the other three chaplains to share the rest. He also made sure that he was organising concerts for the men, games and evangelistic meetings. He covered all of the men in the brigade, not just the men in the 4th Battalion. He moved amongst the soldiers constantly. He tracked down men whose families had written to him, saying that they hadn't heard from their sons or husbands for some time, getting them to write home. He didn't restrict himself to the men who were fit, but also visited the men in the hospitals scattered around Cairo, visiting not just the men from his own brigade or country, for that matter. One ulcerous sore that constantly upset Mac were the brothels in Cairo. That was to culminate in what was known as the Battle of Wazir. There's a lot of controversy over what happened there, and some put Mac right bang in the centre of it. In my next program, I'll look into that colourful episode. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, CYKIAE. Strange name. 